Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. On the morning of Sunday, March 15, 1987, Cheryl Chapman was awakened by a phone call from the manager at the restaurant where she worked as a waitress. Her sister, Nancy Newman, also worked for the same restaurant, but had not arrived for her 6 o'clock shift and the manager had tried to call her for almost two hours with no response. Nancy's vehicle was still in the parking lot from when she got a ride home from Cheryl Friday evening. Cheryl told her employer that she would go over to her sister's apartment and check on her. Nancy was a very responsible and dependable person and would never just not show up for work. Her being two hours late and not answering her phone made Cheryl so nervous she wasn't able to get the key into the door lock, so her husband Paul had to do it. Cheryl sat at the kitchen table while Paul went down the hall to check on his sister-in-law and nieces. When Cheryl saw Paul rushing back toward her, she stood up, but he grabbed her and told her, quote, Don't go down the hall. They're all dead. This is Monsters. Kirby Anthony was born on December 23, 1963 in Twin Falls, Idaho. His father was a truck driver named Noah Anthony, who went by Tony, and his mother was a bartender and waitress named Peggy Anthony. Tony and Peggy had a tumultuous relationship, but still managed to have five children, with Kirby being the youngest. Tony wasn't around much due to his job, but when he was, he was violent with Peggy and the kids. Kirby would later describe an incident that ended with Peggy shooting Tony. One of Kirby's brothers forgot to feed the cat, so Tony started beating the boy, naturally. When Peggy tried to stop him, he knocked her to the ground and kicked her in the ribs. Peggy crawled to their bedroom and retrieved a 38 caliber revolver out of the drawer. She pointed it at Tony when he came in to continue the punishment and he just laughed and said, quote, Go ahead and shoot me, Peg. So she did. She hit him in the hip and Tony drove himself to the hospital. Kirby once told a social worker that he didn't want to be involved in crime, but his situation at home seemed to make his involvement inevitable. In March of 1978, a 14-year-old Kirby was charged with first-degree burglary. He received a suspended sentence and one year of probation. Only three months after his probation ended, in June of 1979, Kirby was arrested again after one of his brothers siphoned gas from another car. He received another two years of probation. It was only eight months later that Kirby was arrested again, this time being charged with bombing a building. He had attempted to use balloons filled with acetylene to burn down his school, and when he was caught, he admitted guilt and was sentenced to 30 days in juvenile detention and had his probation extended. On July 4, 1980, Kirby was arrested with some other boys after breaking into a commercial building. 
The other boys stole from the cash registers, while Kirby stole two pints of whiskey. The courts finally realized that Kirby wouldn't stay out of trouble on his own, and they sent him to a youth services center where he was able to get his GED and get vocational training. He spent four months at the center where he received counseling, got his GED, and began training as a mechanic. Then he was released with a report that stated he had a 40% chance of committing more crime. By the time Kirby was 16 years old, he had been in and out of the legal system and had fooled that system into believing that he was reformed. His counselors from the Youth Services Center wrote a glowing review to the courts and recommended his outstanding charges be dropped. On January 6, 1982, Kirby showed up at the home of Thelma Stull, who lived alone and was in a wheelchair, and robbed her at gunpoint. He stole her cash, tied her up, and sprayed her in the face with mace. He also took the telephone with him when he left, so she couldn't call for help. Her son came by later and discovered Thelma and called the police. Thelma was easily able to identify Kirby, and he was arrested. He confessed to the crime and was convicted of felony assault, but I couldn't find any details about his sentence. Later that year, Kirby was dating a girl named Kim Hawkins when he took her to Pine Bridge where he was meeting some other friends. They had a box of rabbits that they intended to set on fire and parachute off the bridge. When Kim learned what they were going to do, she started crying and Kirby played the hero by saving the rabbits from their fate. With Kim now happy, Kirby took her home and promptly returned to the bridge where he and the other boys lit the rabbits on fire and sent them sailing to their deaths. It wasn't long before Kim realized how violent Kirby could be. When she tried to break up with him, he showed up at her house and began strangling her. She was home alone at the time, but fortunately her brother and his friends interrupted him and he stopped. They managed to get him out of the house, but he told Kim that he'd kill her if she ever started dating anyone else. Despite the relationship being over, Kirby spent years stalking her, even after she got married. Even while Kirby was dating other women, he had other girlfriends after Kim, yet he was still stalking her. He had even gotten one of her friends pregnant while they were still dating, which led to the baby being put up for adorption. I'm sorry, adoption. In 1984, Kirby started dating a woman named Debbie Heck. On the evening of July 27, 1985, 12-year-old Michelle Bethel was raped, beaten, and strangled in Rock Creek Canyon just outside of Twin Falls. The attacker left her for dead, but she was discovered and taken to the hospital. When police interviewed her the next day, she couldn't remember what happened. Investigators found a pair of thong sandals near where Michelle was found, and they learned that a group of young men had been partying nearby. When they asked around, they found that the sandals belonged to a man named Sam Barry, and he told investigators that he had lent them to a friend named Kirby Anthony. Sam explained that when he left with Kirby, he had apologized and said that he had lost his sandals. Sam said he suggested they look for them, but Kirby seemed to be in a hurry to leave. They interviewed Kirby, and he told them that he had gotten the sandals and his feet dirty, so he went down to the river to wash them off, and he left them down there. They asked him for the clothes he wore that night, but he ended up giving them different clothes. His girlfriend at the time, Debbie Heck, knew that he lied about the clothes, but she didn't say anything. Kirby had told her that he ripped his pants at the party and threw them out. Kirby assured police that he would fully cooperate with their investigation, then he fled to Alaska. Despite believing that Kirby was innocent, 
Debbie went with him and didn't seem to think it was weird to skip town in the middle of a rape and assault investigation. When they first arrived in Anchorage, they stayed with friends of Kirby's before finding a place of their own. Kirby worked as a drywaller, and Debbie worked as a checker at a grocery store. Kirby also worked at the Northern Light Car Wash for a while. At the end of 1986, Kirby and Debbie got jobs working the Arctic Enterprise. This is a factory ship that processes fish right on the ship after it's caught. These ships can go out to sea for weeks to months, and the workers take long shifts either fishing or processing the catch. Kirby and Debbie were planning to leave on a ship at the beginning of the new year, so they started getting rid of all of their belongings. In December of 1986, the couple stayed at the home of John and Nancy Newman, Kirby's uncle and aunt, until they left aboard the Arctic Enterprise. Before they left, Nancy loaned Kirby $500 without telling John. She did tell Kirby's mother Peggy about the loan about a month later. Once on the Arctic Enterprise, Debbie said she couldn't take Kirby's violence anymore. The entire time they were together, Kirby had a violent temper and she was constantly scared for her life. Debbie figured that she would be more protected on the ship surrounded by co-workers, so she used the opportunity to break things off with Kirby. Unsurprisingly, he didn't take the breakup well and it only made matters worse that Debbie started seeing another worker on the ship, Doug Anderson. Kirby's erratic behavior got him fired and he was asked to leave the ship on February 13, 1987. Before he left, he told one of the other workers that he wanted to kill Doug. From where he departed the ship, Kirby took a plane back to Anchorage and took a taxi directly to the Newman's apartment. John and Nancy Newman met in Twin Falls, Idaho and married on January 5, 1975. They had their first daughter, Melissa, on September 22, 1978, followed by another daughter, Angela, on August 17, 1983. John was a heavy equipment operator and he got a job in Anchorage in 1985. He moved first and Nancy and the girls followed a few months later. Nancy worked part-time at H&R Block while also working as a waitress at Gwenny's Old Alaska Restaurant. In 1986, John was in a forklift accident at work which left him with serious injuries. Nancy took a week off from work when the accident happened, but her boss said that outside of that and being late to her shift once in a year and a half, she was a very dependable employee. Nancy's sister, Cheryl Chapman, was already living in Anchorage, married to her second husband, Paul Chapman, when the Newmans made the move. Like Nancy, Cheryl had also worked as a bookkeeper, but in the summer of 1986, she also started working as a waitress at Gwenny's. After John's accident, the state unemployment agency paid to have him retrained as a locksmith. He was sent to California for a two-month training program on January 3, 1987. It was about three days before Kirby and Debbie left for work on the Arctic Enterprise, which John was happy about because he didn't really feel completely comfortable with his nephew living with his wife and daughters without him there. That was just his gut feeling without knowing about the troubles that Kirby had gotten into in Twin Falls. Kirby's mother, Peggy, who was also John's sister, hadn't told him or Nancy anything about Kirby being investigated for the rape and assault of a 12-year-old. John would later say that he would have never let his nephew anywhere near his family if he had known that. When Kirby arrived at the Newman's apartment after he left the Arctic Enterprise, nobody was home so he waited in the taxi until Nancy and Cheryl showed up. 
he told Nancy that he and Debbie broke up and he couldn't manage to be on the same ship as her. Nancy reluctantly let him move back in, but once John found out, he was very unhappy and told Nancy to ask him to leave. Nancy told Kirby that he had to move out, and though he complied, he was furious about it. He moved in with a friend named Dan Grant. At 6 p.m. on March 13th, Nancy had dinner at Gwenny's with Cheryl and Paul. Cheryl's daughter from her first marriage was babysitting Melissa and Angie. When they finished dinner, they decided to go to Nancy's apartment and Nancy left her car in the restaurant parking lot, opting to ride with her sister and brother-in-law. Paul said he could give her a ride back to her car the next day if she needed it. Nancy had the day off, but was scheduled to work in the morning on the 15th. At Nancy's apartment, they drank coffee and chatted for another hour before the Chapmans left. Nancy never called the next day for a ride back to her car and Cheryl even called her a few times but never got a hold of her. It wasn't until the following morning that Cheryl would get the call that Nancy hadn't shown up for work and her entire life would change. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. When the first officer arrived on the scene, he quickly entered the apartment and cleared it of any suspects. He briefly checked the bedrooms and confirmed the victims before exiting the apartment and securing the scene. When paramedics arrived on the scene, they were denied entry because the victims were clearly deceased and the officer wanted to preserve the crime scene. In the master bedroom, Nancy was found with her nightgown pushed up past her breasts and she had a pillowcase tied around her neck. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled. In the next bedroom, eight-year-old Melissa was lying on her back on the floor. Her nightgown was pushed up to her chest and a pillowcase was also wrapped tight around her neck. Another pillowcase was tied around her right wrist, making it seem like she had been tied up at some point. Her underwear were on the floor nearby and the medical examiner found major injuries to the girl's vagina that indicated the use of a blunt object for penetration. Three-year-old Angie was in the last bedroom. She was lying on her back on the floor in a puddle of blood. Her throat had been slashed at least four times. The cut severed her trachea, esophagus, left carotid artery, and her jugular vein. She had defensive knife wounds on her right hand and injuries to her face and head. Her nightgown was pushed up to her torso and there was evidence of sexual assault. The medical examiner determined that the victims had been killed the previous morning, which was supported by evidence at the scene. The forensics team worked meticulously inside the apartment to collect every bit of evidence they could. They vacuumed every single room in the house in a grid pattern and logged every hair and fiber they found. They also lifted a number of fibers off of the victims and the bedding in each room. On the dresser in the master bedroom, they found a pair of adult-size army-style olive green wool gloves. In the bathroom, they found blood on the underside of the light switch and a used washcloth on the sink. The investigators used a process where they filled the apartment with superglue vapors, which would make fingerprints more visible and easier to lift. They fingerprinted the entire apartment. Based on the crime scene, detectives believed that the killer knew the victims. 
he would have felt comfortable enough to take the time to rape and kill three victims. Not only that, but the apartment wasn't ransacked. It was revealed that money had been taken from an empty cookie tin on the kitchen table, and Nancy's purse, John's keys, a checkbook, jewelry, a wallet, and some camera equipment were all missing. Whoever committed the crime knew what to take and where those items were. Nancy put all of her tips, mostly change, into the cookie tin, but there was an identical cookie tin on the refrigerator which wasn't touched. Someone already knew where the money was. John Newman was still in California. He had a week of training left before he was scheduled to return home. He was obviously eliminated as a suspect, and when he got the news, he traveled to Twin Falls to be with family. The problem with having a suspect that knew the family was that there would be a reason for their fingerprints and hair to be in the apartment. Detectives would look into Paul Chapman, and despite him not having a verifiable alibi for the time in question, they ruled him out based on his story matching evidence from the scene. He described his last time being in the apartment was Friday night, and in the kitchen there were four coffee mugs in the sink, and his prints weren't found in any of the bedrooms. Investigators asked if any other family members lived in the area, and they told them about Kirby. Detectives quickly tracked down Kirby and knocked on his door. They informed him that his aunt and two cousins were dead, and he was asked to come to the police station and help with the investigation. Kirby had trouble nailing down his exact whereabouts for the time in question, but that's not entirely unusual for a young man with a pension for partying. He explained that he had been at a party at a friend's house Friday night, which was confirmed. It turned out that the party involved an excessive amount of cocaine, which Kirby omitted from his story, but that didn't change the fact that he had been seen there. He left the party briefly to get more beer, but he wasn't alone on the trip. Kirby said he left the party at 7.05 a.m. and walked across the street to his house. He woke his roommate up for work and then watched television. He explained that at one point that morning, he called Nancy to see if he could come by. He told the detectives that he just wanted to visit with her and give her some money that he owed her and possibly do some laundry. It's unclear if he talked to Nancy or not, but he said that at 8.45 a.m., he went to a friend's house and did laundry there. He claimed he got there at about 9 a.m., but when questioned, the friend said he didn't arrive until between 10 and 11 o'clock, so Kirby's alibi had a two-hour hole in it. When presented with this discrepancy, he claimed to have also gone to Burger King for breakfast, where he sat in the parking lot at 8. The employees at Burger King said no one sat in the parking lot that morning. They said that Saturday morning was not a busy time and they would have remembered a man sitting in his truck in the parking lot. When presented with that discrepancy, he said that he actually sat in the parking lot across the street. It seemed that Kirby kept giving stories with holes in them and then finding ways to fill the holes. Coincidentally, it made none of his stories verifiable. It's not really an alibi if nobody saw you there. Also, to forget that you went to a fast food restaurant for breakfast and then to forget that you ate in the parking lot across the street was fairly suspicious. The investigators explained that they needed to get elimination samples from Kirby since he had lived in the apartment. They needed his fingerprints, palm print, hair samples, and a blood sample. When they searched his apartment, they found the camera bag that was missing from the Newman's apartment. In it was John's 35mm camera, lens, and flash. 
Kirby claimed that Nancy had lent him the camera and that she told him not to tell John because he would have a fit. John would later say that Nancy would never lend out his camera. It was also revealed that Kirby had two other cameras and John's camera still had a half a roll of family pictures in it. Seems like you'd take the film out or use it up before you lend out the camera. It also proved that Kirby had not used the camera he was so eager to borrow. During the search, they also found a drop of blood on his shoes. There wasn't DNA testing at the time, but they were able to determine it was human blood. When detectives questioned Kirby again, one of them lied and said they found his hair inside of the green wool gloves that were on Nancy's dresser. If Kirby hadn't worn the gloves, he would have said that to the detectives. He would have said it was impossible since he'd never worn them. Instead, Kirby thought for a minute and then told the detective that he had borrowed them the previous week to clean snow off of Nancy's car. Kirby claimed that it had snowed a ton and that he either used his hands or a broom to clean all the snow off of the car. When the detective looked up weather reports, he found that it hadn't snowed much any day that week. The most snow that had fallen over an entire day was half an inch, which is not considered a ton of snow in Alaska. I'm from the Pacific Northwest and that's barely considered a light dusting. So Kirby fabricated a story to explain why his hairs were found in the gloves even though no hairs had actually been found in them. When the forensics unit started going through all of the fingerprints, they did find Kirby's prints in the apartment. Obviously, they would be in the living room, kitchen, and bathroom, but they were also in Melissa's room because that's the room he and Debbie stayed in before they left on the ship. On top of those prints, though, there were more of Kirby's prints in places that they shouldn't be. One of those places was in Nancy's bedroom, and there was a left palm print on the wall over Melissa's bed which seemed fresh, and it was in a spot that would make sense if he was bracing himself while assaulting the girl. They also found Kirby's fingerprints inside the cookie tin where Nancy had kept her tip money. The FBI forensics lab processed a massive amount of hairs and fibers found at the scene. Pubic hairs that matched samples from Kirby were found in every room including on Melissa's body and on top of her bedding. Hair comparisons are not the strongest way to match a person to a crime, but Kirby did have unique characteristics of his hairs that made these comparisons more certain than with other people. Also, pubic hairs that were collected from the washcloth found in the bathroom matched Kirby's and one had an egg sac connected to it from pubic lice. When Kirby was examined, it was revealed that he did in fact have pubic lice. Investigators believed that Nancy and her daughters got up on Saturday morning and began having breakfast. There were three coffee cups already in the sink from the previous night, and there were partial bowls of cereal and a coffee cup on the kitchen table. It's believed that Kirby arrived a little before 9 a.m. He might have really called Nancy and asked if he could come over, and she told him no and he was upset, but that's speculation. When he arrived, he and Nancy talked in the kitchen which would explain the contents of the ashtray. There were only a few butts in the ashtray. Four Marlboro Lights, which was the brand Nancy smoked, and a Camel filtered. They found out that Paul Chapman had been smoking Camels the night before, but it was clear that Nancy had emptied the ashtray at the end of Friday night or it would have had more butts in it. The pile of butts in the kitchen garbage confirmed that theory. 
So investigators posited that Kirby had spent enough time talking to Nancy in the kitchen to smoke a camel cigarette. They had taken a saliva sample from the camel cigarette butt, and it didn't match a sample taken from Paul. Investigators did learn that Kirby regularly smoked camel cigarettes, and the saliva sample would eventually come back as a match to one taken from Kirby. By the end of Kirby's cigarette, he became enraged and forced Nancy and the girls into their rooms. It's believed that he tied up Melissa, but it's unknown in what order he attacked each one of them. Investigators believe that he went out to the living room and looked out the window to see if anyone was around before he commenced his assault. There was a fresh shoe print that matched Kirby's on the fireplace that was a perfect spot to see out the window. After the attacks, they believe he went into the bathroom and used the washcloth to clean himself up. Then he went through the apartment, taking valuables from where he knew they were. The camera, the jewelry, the cookie tin. He didn't ransack the apartment because he didn't need to. He took what he wanted and slid out of the house, locking the door handle as he left. There was no sign of forced entry. There were no screams from discovering an intruder. This crime was committed by Kirby Anthony. The circumstantial evidence was piling up, but investigators wanted more, so they put Kirby under surveillance. They made sure that Kirby knew that he was under surveillance, though. Their goal was to rattle him into making a mistake, more so than to catch him doing something secret. On March 20th, Kirby met a woman at a nightclub and asked her if she had heard about the murders, explaining that they were his aunt and two cousins. Because if that's not the perfect icebreaker, I don't know what is. He told the woman that Nancy had to watch while Melissa was sexually assaulted. Investigators talked to the woman and found it very strange that Kirby would make that up about his own family members, which led them to believe that he may be telling the truth. Of course, how would he know that unless he was there? Eventually, it was discovered that just a few days after the murders, Kirby called Carol Hawkins, the mother of his ex-girlfriend Kim in Twin Falls. During the call, he talked about the murders and told Carol that Nancy was raped and that one of the girls was stabbed. This information had never been released by the police and had not appeared in any media. The only way Kirby could have known those details was if he had been there during the murders. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. An FBI profiler said that the suspect would continually call the police department and ask for updates in the case, and Kirby did exactly that. When he called about a month after the murders, the detective told him that he had just received some results from the lab that he wanted to talk to Kirby about. He set up an appointment for Kirby to come in the next day, but their prime suspect in the triple homicide didn't show up. He called the police station and left a message saying he was helping a friend with their vehicle, but that was a lie. The surveillance on Kirby had been lightened because they weren't really getting much out of it. Kirby told his roommate, Dan Grant, that he was leaving and asked him not to tell the police. Kirby got in his truck and started driving toward the Canadian border. Dan kept his mouth shut for hours before finally coming to his senses and calling the police. 
His fear of retaliation from Kirby had cost them seven hours. The drive from Anchorage to the Canadian border took less than eight hours. Anchorage police called the Border Patrol, and when they described his truck, they said he had just crossed into Canada, but that he would be stopped at Canadian Customs in about 20 miles. When the police called there, they explained that he was the suspect of a triple homicide in Alaska, a rape and attempted murder in Idaho, and that he had a felony conviction on his record. On top of that, he was driving on a suspended license. It was more than enough reason for Canadian Customs to deny him entry into the country. The customs agent said that Kirby was actually approaching right then and he put the police on hold. When the agent came back, he told the police that he told Kirby to bugger off and he was headed back towards Alaska. The Anchorage police called the Border Patrol back and found out that two Alaska state troopers had just stopped by and they were waiting for him to come back through. Of course, Kirby had about 20 miles of road where he could have stopped and fled on foot, but it was the middle of the wilderness in the Canadian Yukon. It would be very unlikely that he survived. He could have tried to hitch a ride from someone else, but he would have likely been recognized by the Canadian customs agent. Kirby probably didn't even know that the police were on to him and thought that he was denied entry into Canada due to his suspended license. A few minutes later, Kirby came through the border crossing and he was arrested by the state troopers for driving on a suspended license. When his truck was searched, they found a marijuana pipe with residue which qualified his vehicle to be impounded. Kirby was placed in a local jail on $5,000 bail for driving with a suspended license. The lead detective flew up to where Kirby was being held and presented him with arrest warrants for three counts of first-degree murder, two counts of first-degree sexual assault, and one count of kidnapping. See, in Alaska, if you tie someone up, against their will, it counts as kidnapping because you're keeping that person from being able to move about freely on their own. Since Melissa had a pillowcase tied to one wrist, it was evident that she had been tied up for some period during the attack, so the district attorney added the kidnapping charge. When the detective told Kirby what he was being charged with, he responded, quote, What's this kidnapping shit? He had just been charged with multiple counts of rape and murder and didn't question that at all but couldn't understand why he was being charged with kidnapping. While Kirby was in jail awaiting trial, his neighbor came forward and told police that he had tried to sell him John's camera a few days after the murders. The neighbor described the camera bag perfectly, which was blue nylon with red writing. He told them that Kirby also owed him about $50 and paid him back 30 of it in rolled quarters and dimes. The prosecutor learned that the semen sample taken from Melissa's body had a unique genetic marker that could be matched if they had a semen sample from Kirby. It appeared in about 1% of the population, so if Kirby had it, it would really help in proving his guilt. If he didn't have it, it would equally help exonerate him. Kirby refused to give a semen sample willingly, so the prosecutor tried to have the judge order a sample be forcefully extracted from the defendant. The judge denied the request because he felt the procedure was too intrusive and the science behind the testing wasn't accepted in court at the time. The prosecutor would have to make do with the evidence they already had. At the same time, the defense tried to make the judge order the prosecutor to only use black and white pictures during the trial. They wanted to sanitize the images of the crime scene in order to keep the jury's emotions from getting to them. The judge denied their request as well. 
Kirby's trial began on April 25, 1988, and he had almost no support. All but two of his friends had abandoned him, and his mother didn't travel to Alaska for the trial. The prosecution presented testimonies from the police and from people who personally knew Kirby at the time, like Debbie Heck. They presented the fingerprints, the stolen goods, the pubic hairs with lice. The detective testified about Kirby's ever-shifting alibi, which was never able to be verified. The neighbor testified about the camera and the rolled coins. The FBI testified about the profile developed by the Behavioral Analysis Unit and how it perfectly matched Kirby. The defense presented their case, which pretty much consisted of them saying, Nuh-uh, and objecting to literally everything the prosecution presented. I understand that it's the defense lawyer's job to object to details that shouldn't be presented to the jury. It's what keeps the trial fair. But there seem to be some defense attorneys who know their chances of winning are bad and they adopt this strategy of just objecting to everything they possibly can and trying to get as much evidence tossed out. And so far, as far as I've seen, it never works and it's just really, really fucking annoying. The defense also had Kirby's two remaining friends testify that he was calm and relaxed when he arrived at their house at about 10.30 a.m., which would have been right after he raped and murdered his aunt and cousins. That doesn't prove that he didn't commit the crime. It just shows what a complete and utter psychopath he is. Then Kirby took the stand to testify in his own defense. Even if his defense had a chance of winning before, which they didn't, Kirby destroyed it. Everything he said on the stand were new, made-up lies that didn't match statements he had made before. The jury had heard Debbie Heck take the stand and describe the real Kirby Anthony, and she said he would constantly lie to get himself out of trouble. She specifically said, quote, For him, lying is like an addiction. Kirby would claim that he never said something to the detectives, and the prosecutor would play back the recording of him saying it. Then Kirby would just make up another lie to explain why he said what he did but didn't mean it. While Kirby was at trial for rape and triple murder, more evidence was found against him, but this case had nothing to do with the Newmans. A person named Walter Napageek was murdered on April 11th, almost a month after the Newmans, and when police went back over the unsolved crime details, they found connections to Kirby. It happened near the car wash where Kirby worked. Walter was found stripped from the waist down and had his pants tied around his neck. When they went back over the evidence collected at the scene, hair samples were a close match to Kirby's. Another inmate where Kirby was being held told police that he had confessed to the crime. There was a rumor that the crime was sexually motivated, and Kirby wanted the inmate to know that he had killed Walter but that it was over drugs and not sex. Kirby was so concerned about his own macho image that he confessed to a murder so that other inmates wouldn't think he was gay. The prosecutor compiled details about the crime but never ended up filing charges due to the outcome of the trial from the Newman murders. When Kirby was cross-examined, the prosecutor tried to get a straight answer about why he needed to borrow a camera, but Kirby just made up more lies. Then he handed John's camera to Kirby and asked him to explain how to use it. Kirby had absolutely no idea. He also couldn't explain how his pubic hairs with pubic lice got on the washcloth in the bathroom, and he couldn't explain how he had known Nancy was raped and Angie was stabbed before anyone else. 
Then the prosecutor read a letter that Kirby had written to his parents from jail where he explained how long it would have taken him to commit the crime. He goes over each detail of the crime and assigns it an amount of time. It's absolutely disgusting, but his goal was to explain to his parents that he wouldn't have had enough time to carry out the rapes and murders. Of course, that was based on the times from his alibi that couldn't be proven. Then the prosecutor read other jail letters from Kirby where he said that John Newman, his uncle, the man who had just lost his wife and two daughters, could kiss his ass, and one where he says that Paul Newman, quote, is going to think he's in hell when I see that fat piece of shit. Clearly, Kirby was not the calm character who was crying on the witness stand. He was a violent, angry man. Despite being absolutely destroyed by the prosecution, Kirby was so convinced that he could talk his way out of raping and murdering his aunt and cousins that he presented his own closing arguments. He responded to each of the prosecutor's theories and once again tried to lie his way out of the charges, but the jury wasn't fooled. The short deliberation was a sign of bad news for Kirby, and maybe he knew it, because before the verdict was announced, he turned around to face John Newman, who was sitting in the second row and yelled out, quote, You're a fool, John. Everyone else was frozen with shock, but John lunged at Kirby yelling, quote, Don't you even talk to me. Two officers caught John and made sure to stay between them for the remainder of the session. On June 6, 1988, Kirby Anthony was found guilty of three counts of first-degree murder, two counts of first-degree sexual assault, and one count of kidnapping. Even after attempting to defend himself and failing, Kirby just couldn't keep his mouth shut. He spent time at his sentencing hearing arguing with the judge and finally he was sentenced to 99 years for each murder, to be served consecutively. The judge sentenced him to 99 years for the kidnapping charge to run concurrent to the murder charges. Then he sentenced him to 30 years for each of the sexual assault charges to be served consecutively with the murder charges. Kirby Anthony was sentenced to a total of 375 years in prison. At the end of the judge's sentence, Kirby began yelling about how he was innocent and that he didn't want to hear any more from the judge. It was all for show, though. Narcissists don't like it when they fail at manipulating people and the next best thing is attention, and that's what Kirby wanted. The judge wouldn't give it to him, though. He simply called for a recess and Kirby was taken away to spend the rest of his life in prison as a baby killer. Kirby Anthony thought that he was the toughest guy around, and when his aunt kicked him out and wouldn't allow him to come back, he couldn't handle being slighted. He attacked his family members, and I believe the sexual assaults were a way for Kirby to show Nancy who was boss. He not only took his rage out on his aunt, but his three- and eight-year-old cousins, raping and murdering them like a monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help.
If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.